Turn, if you would, with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Look with me at verse 15. Moses gives instruction to the children of Israel just on the brink of their entering into the promised land before he dies, giving an exposition of the law. Verse 15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And I'll stop there. He gives more instruction with regard to who they are to listen to or who not they, uh, who they're not to listen to. But if you look at the promise that God is making here, he's making a promise of a prophet from among them in answer to their prayer. I don't know if you've ever thought of the incarnation as an answer to prayer, but their prayer was, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. They were so afraid when God revealed himself on Sinai that they requested something else, and the Lord regarded that as a good request because of his greatness and glory, and then gave the promise again, verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is one of the mysteries, you could say, of the incarnation that God has revealed He has taught us by his word that he is going to send a prophet, priest, and king into the world. We began looking at the mystery of the incarnation from 1 Timothy chapter 3 by common confession. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And it's really that phrase, he who was revealed in the flesh. Who was it that was revealed in the flesh? It was the seed of the woman who would crush the tempter, the serpent on the head. He would crush the head of the serpent. He's the seed of Abraham who would bless the world. He's the one mediator between God and men. 
A mediator is a go-between, and when we look at mediators in Scripture, we see in the Old Testament a pattern of how God communicates to man through prophet, through priest, through king. Jesus is all three, and we don't often think of his prophetic office, but this is one passage which draws attention to the fact that the one who came like Moses, would come and speak God's words, and he would speak everything that God commanded him. There wouldn't be any uh, unbelief. There wouldn't be any uh, disobedience. There would be a complete delivery of the word of God to man. And so when we think about the Lord Jesus and we think about his ministry, this is one of those times where the Old Testament speaks and the New Testament gives us some insight that this was actually about Christ. Uh, So we don't have to wonder, we don't have to question uh, whether or not this is about Christ. It is about Christ. Uh, Peter, in his preaching in the book of Acts, identifies this passage and the prophet like Moses uh, to be directed as uh, a fulfillment of when Jesus came. Jesus is this prophet. Uh, This passage here, notice in verse 15, points to the humanity of this prophet. Notice it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. He will come from this nation. And it says, from your countrymen, from your brothers. So he is going to be one of them. And one writer said it's important that the one who mediates is connected with the one that he mediates for. And both in terms of his being a priest as well as being a prophet and king, he is one of them. He is a countryman. Uh, There's also, of course, the ministry of his words to the nation. It says at the end of the verse, you shall listen to him. And then again, In verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And that's what a prophet does. A prophet speaks to man on behalf of God. He says, thus says the Lord. Of course, in the case of Christ, he didn't have to utter those words unless he was speaking of what the Father had said, because he also was the Lord and could say, truly, truly, and speak words of truth. Uh, Turn over, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Another passage that points to the prophetic ministry of Christ. As you look at the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, this is one of those passages where the one who is being pictured is acting as servant to the Lord, speaking in the first person. Verse 4, it says, the Lord God has given me, notice the capital M, if you're using the New American Standard, it draws attention to the one who is speaking as divine. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. 
the idea of opening his ear is giving him words to say, and he's a ready recipient of those words and then delivers them. He gives the words. And of course, we know Jesus had many words to say, and he claimed as he preached and as he taught that he was speaking from the Father. In fact, he said in John 14, 10, do not believe, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So he's receiving words from the Father. He's then delivering them to the people. Just like Moses said, God said to Moses, I'll give him my words and he's going to speak everything that I give him to say. Now, what's the response to that? When Jesus said what he said, when he came to Israel, what was their response? Well, for the disciples in John 14, they were receptive. God had done a work of grace in their hearts, and though they were at times unbelieving or ignorant or not understanding, there was a reception of Christ's words. In fact, what did Peter say when there were some who heard Jesus' words and left? Peter said, as Jesus asked them, will you also go away? And he said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. There was a willingness to receive the words and to follow the words. But that wasn't the case when Jesus spoke all of his words. We can see in verse 6 the response to the words of Jesus when as he speaks the words given to him by God. Notice verse 6, he says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. When he gave the words, particularly to the Sanhedrin, when he was adjured by the high priest, when he said, I adjure you by God, I, 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 uh, that you tell me whether you're the Christ or not. And he said, I am, and hereafter you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest ripped his garment. And he said, what need do we have of further witnesses? And they all started to react to those words because they did not believe his claim though it was true. And of course, it just proceeded from there through to the crucifixion. So verse 6, though we don't have a record of the middle of the verse in the New Testament, we expect that what was taking place by those Roman soldiers when he was being persecuted, that scripture came to pass. Not only did he give his back to those who struck him, but also he gave his cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. And they humiliated him, they mocked his claims, and they spit in his face. And let's not distance ourselves from that, because we as sinners would do the same apart from the grace of God. But this is the prophetic ministry of our Lord, and he obeyed even to the point of shedding blood striving against sin. Verse 7 says, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. 
He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? And then he pronounces judgment upon those who do not trust in the Lord. And of course, the Lord did vindicate Jesus. The Father vindicated his son when his son was risen from the dead, raised from the dead. That was a great vindication of our Lord, of his prophetic ministry, of the truthfulness of what he had to say. In fact, the prophecies of his own resurrection came true as he rose from the dead. It was a demonstration that he was as they thought he was. John 6, seeing one of the signs which Jesus did, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. The Jews were actually looking for this one who would come. And there were times where the signs that he did made it evident that he was the one. Of course, Lazarus being raised from the dead was another. Even the Samaritan woman, if you look at the Samaritans, they did not believe, I'm not going to say categorically, but generally speaking, they did not believe anything past the Pentateuch. They believed in the writings of Moses, but they didn't follow the rest of the Old Testament. And so there was a division over what was the authoritative word of God. But there was enough similarity because they believed in the Pentateuch and the writings of Moses that they recognized even passages like Deuteronomy 18. In fact, it's the woman at the well who said to Jesus that she knew that when the Messiah comes, she said, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. They understood the prophetic ministry of the Messiah. The Jews did as well. But of course, the Jews rejected his claim. They rejected his claim to be the Son of God. I want you to notice something else. We turn back to Deuteronomy 18. There is an accountability that God specifies with this prophecy. While he holds his people accountable, for the words that a prophet delivers in his name. There's a a statement here that specifies God's interest in enforcing the word of this prophet. Notice verse 18, middle of the verse, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Verse 19, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God is going to hold the people accountable for their refusal to listen to this prophet in a very personal way. And again, it's not that he didn't hold the people accountable for other prophets, but he is, he says, I myself will require it of him. Uh, Turn over to Acts chapter three, where Peter references this. Acts chapter three. Peter references this prophecy of the Christ and his prophetic ministry. He has preached the gospel. He's preached the truth about Jesus. 
verses 11 down through verse 16 and also drawn attention to the as the the man who had not walked was healed but he draws attention to the crucifixion to the resurrection to the healing based upon Jesus name verse 17 and he says and now brethren I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ or the Messiah appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Notice, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And he goes on, and of course he cites the passage as well about Abraham's seed down in verse 25. But look at that statement there in verse 23. It will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. God is pronouncing through Peter, and I think Peter is alluding to an Old Testament text in Leviticus 23. But God is telling through Peter, through his word, that those who do not listen to this prophet will be destroyed. I put it this way, to fail to listen to Jesus is of serious consequence eternally, particularly regarding his own identity. Because Jesus' message was a message of salvation. Jesus' message was a message of salvation centered upon him. He always spoke the truth. He came to bear testimony to the truth. He said to Pilate, for this I've been born, for this I've come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What is the truth? I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. One writer said Jesus, like his earliest followers, was convinced that how one responded to him was the most important decision anyone could make in his or her life. On this response hinges one's eternal destiny. And that is true. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Is he the son of God? Or is he just a teacher? Is he just a prophet or is he the prophet of God who is speaking for God, declaring all the words that God gave him? Some of those words had to do with his own identity which to fail to believe upon him and to believe his words is of eternal consequence. If you don't believe that truth about Christ, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, 
you will spend an eternity in hell. If you refuse to accept who he is and put your trust in him. The salvation that Jesus preached was centered upon him personally. It necessitated the cross. Jesus predicted it. He came for that very purpose. He accomplished salvation by laying down his own life. The only way he could lay down his own life was to become incarnate, to come in the flesh. God cannot die. Jesus existed from all eternity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but he came in time in the flesh in order to die because God cannot die. He's immortal, deathless. This is what the writer of Hebrews explains. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And that is the reality that if you don't have Christ, I heard someone say this week that one of their major fears is death. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear to leave this world. If you know the one who will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death and the one who has the power to give life, the one who created this world and created mankind and gave the judgment of death and also gave the possibility of eternal life, if you're trusting in him, you don't have to worry about death. You don't have to worry about standing before his judgment seat in the sense of having to answer for all that you've done for all of your sins in this life. Because as he died, he paid the debt of our sins. Jesus is the final prophet. There's debate about that. In the Bible, there's no debate. There is a final prophet. And it is not Muhammad. It is not any other prophet that someone could imagine. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days has spoken to us in a son, in his son, through whom he also made the world. He appointed him heir of all things. Jesus is the final prophet. And I I could just ask by way of application, have you listened to him? Are you listening to him? The shepherd speaks and the sheep follow, but those who are not his sheep won't follow him. But he's still calling. There's still more sheep. And even in a congregation like this today, this very word of the gospel, as it comes today, he could be calling you to come to him, to follow him. You will never regret it. And it is the most important decision you will make in your life. Would that you would come and follow him and listen to his call today. And find yourself in the care of a good shepherd who will help you through life. 
and who will be with you when you pass from this life into his presence in eternity, who will raise up your body one day so that you'll live with him forever with all of his people in heaven. Why would anybody want to miss that? except for our foolish ignorance and self-deception that would make us think that life in this world and sin is worth it. But it's all temporary. This is all going to pass away. When you leave this life, none of that's going to be with you. None of it's going to benefit you. Have you listened to this prophet that God has sent into the world? Heed that warning. It will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. But then Peter goes on to say, but God sent him to bless you if you would just trust in him. He is prophet. He is the prophet. He is priest, which we looked at briefly last week. I'm going to ask you to turn to Zechariah. Chapter 6, Zechariah Malachi, close to the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 6. If you had to scope out passages that had to do with the priesthood of Christ in the Old Testament and the New, you surely would be in Hebrews. You would also be in Genesis. You'd be in Psalm 110. But this is another passage that as Zechariah gives a prophecy, we can see something coming together here in an unusual way. Usually in Israel, a prophet was not a priest. A priest was not a king. Those offices did not come together, usually. David was a prophet. He was a king. Because he was the king of Jerusalem, some believe that he was like Melchizedek and was actually a priest as well. I don't know that that's conclusive in Scripture, but as you see Scripture unfold and you see that there is a priestly order outside of the, of the priestly order of Israel, but then realize that Jesus came and he was going to be from among his countrymen. He was going to be one of the brothers. He was going to be a part of the national Israel. Then how is it that someone who descended from the line of Judah, where the scepter or royalty came from, could also be a priest because the priesthood came from the tribe of Levi. Well, the writer of Hebrews talks about that, but here's another passage that's significant. This is at the time of uh, post-exilic period, verse 9, Zechariah is prophesying, saying, the word of the Lord also came to me, saying, take an offering from the exiles. From Heldai to Bijah and Jediah, and you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Okay, so people are coming back. Verse 11, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, so crown. Now, if you were to read back in chapter 3, he has a turban, a priestly turban, but this is a crown. And it's made out of silver and gold. Verse 12, then say to him, say to this high priest uh, upon whom you've just put the crown, says, then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch 
for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Okay, so what what is happening here is something that I, I believe is symbolic. There's a testimony. It is not that Joshua himself is the king. The crown is being set on his head as a symbolic prophecy. It's telling the Israelites that in the future, there's going to be, as it says in the end of verse 13, a council of peace between the two offices. He's going to be a priest. He'll also be on the throne. Notice verse 14. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Now, this passage could be a message or two in and of itself. But I think the, one of the things that we need to see is that God is prophesying through this crown and this symbolic act that the priest and the king would be one and the same. It's interesting that the word in verse 11, when it says, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, that word crown is plural. Some look at this passage and believe there are actually two crowns. There's one that is set on Joshua's head. There's another one that's placed in the temple, verse 14. That's one way to take it. In the original language, it is a plural in verse 11. I'll just read that again. Take silver and gold and make ornate crowns and set, notice the word it is in italics, on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. So when you have a plural, and then you have a crown, and then you have another crown, some would say there's actually two crowns here. And one is to show that the priest is going to rule in the temple. The other one is set aside for the other who eventually will come in the future. Now, I, as I tried to work my way through the passage, I actually believe there's one crown, and there's a better explanation for that word. And that is that it's similar to the word Elohim in the Old Testament, which is a plural, but it's the word God. And it's not meant to communicate multiple gods, but it's meant to communicate the greatness of the one who is God. It's called a plural of majesty, not a plural of number, but the word is formed to show you the greatness or the magnificence of whatever is being described. So in other words, if we apply this just to a crown, this is quite a crown. This is made out of silver and gold woven together. It could be the reason for the plural has to do with the the fact that it's silver and gold, taking those two circlets and then weaving them together so that there's a more ornate crown. It's not just one single, but those two circlets indicating there's two things about this person. In other words, 
there's something about this person that can't be captured with one symbol. It has to be two. In the context, it's a priestly king and a kingly priest. Whatever the case, we understand these two offices are coming together. We understand that there will be a priest who will also be on the throne. And when Jesus comes, how does Jesus act around the temple? He teaches in the temple. He comes to the temple and teaches the people. He doesn't just teach, though. He clears things out of the temple more than once. What authority do you have to do that? Well, you tell me. John, was he from heaven or was he from men? Boy, they couldn't figure that one out, could they? Because they they knew there would be problems if they answered either way. If they said he's from heaven, he could say, why didn't you believe him? If they said he's from men, then the people believed on John and thought he was a prophet. So, Jesus, we really can't tell you the answer to your question. I'm not going to tell you either then by what authority I have to do what I'm doing. But Jesus implied that he does have authority in the temple. He is the priest of the temple. He's the king over the nation. And of course, he's the God who is worshipped within the temple. So does he have the authority? Of course he does. The picture here is of one who would come, who would build the temple of the Lord, who would sit upon the throne, who would act both as priest and king prophet, priest, and king. Turn, if you would, back to Psalm 2, and we'll consider our Lord's royalty. Psalm 2. How many Christmas songs are filled with truths about the royalty of Christ, Christ the King? Oh, come thou key of David, come. Born the King of angels, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn King. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her King. Noel, born is the King of Israel. Of course, before the Psalms, you have the Lord saying through Jacob in Genesis 49 that the scepter within the nation of Israel would be a part of the responsibility of someone in the tribe of Judah. Judah would have the scepter. As Scripture continues on, we see in Numbers that the Messiah, the star of Jacob, was to come from Jacob. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord promised an eternal seed or a son of David to come and sit upon the throne. Psalm 2 tells us about this king. Look in verse 1, and we'll just briefly overview this. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed one, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the raging 
of the world against the authority and the governance of God. The nations are in an uproar. The peoples, the kings, the rulers, they're all wanting to take the shackles and the the bonds that God has placed upon man. The law of God, I believe, is a proper interpretation of that and say, we don't want that. We don't want that rule. And what is God's response to that rebellion? Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So there's contempt, but beyond that, there's anger. Verse five, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And so the raging rebellion of the world, the God's response to that is, first of all, contempt. It's not to say that the raging of the world didn't have an effect. It did. When Christ came into the world, and he spoke God's words, and he was who he was, righteous, holy, how did the world respond? Well, they crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. And that raising Christ from the dead was God's decree and determination that this world will be ruled. It will be ruled by his son. Notice his determination and decree, verse 6, but as for me, I have installed, I have, literally the word there is poured out, like you pour out oil upon uh, something that you're consecrating, which is in the Old Testament, they did that for the anointing of kings. I believe that word installed is actually an allusion to that. Uh, God is anointing the anointed one. He's anointing his king in the place of his choosing. It says, upon Zion, my holy mountain. And so if he's king, what will be his realm? Verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Obviously, he's speaking about the rebels. Again, it's a serious thing, serious of serious consequence to rebel against his words as prophet, but to rebel against his kingly authority. When he has the power to shatter and break them with a rod of iron, And so the posture towards the son is given in verses 10 through 12, the proper posture. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son. Another translation has kiss the son. A kiss of homage a sign of respect, a sign of submission. See someone coming before the king, bowing before the king, the king extending his hand perhaps, and the person kissing his hand as a sign of allegiance. This is my authority. And who is God calling to that? He's not just calling the everyday person. He's calling 
the kings of the earth, the judges of the earth. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, all the kings of the earth. Which means that his authority is over all the earth. His realm is all the earth. He has the power to punish all those within his realm. So that if there's a rebel, he will deal with them. Notice the end of verse 12. Why do homage that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled? How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the king of all the earth. This is the king of all the earth. Turn over to Psalm 89. Not only is he the king of all the earth, but his kingdom is forever. The writer of this psalm, Ethan the Ezraite, says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. Notice this. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. David's son, according to 2 Samuel and passages like this, we see it reiterated, is going to sit on the throne forever. He's going to reign forever. Look down at verse 19. In this psalm, once you've spoken a vision to your godly ones and said, I've given help to one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I've anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him nor the son of wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants or his seed forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Now, the writer is writing at a time where it was apparent that the Davidic dynasty had fallen. The crown was in the dust, verse 39 says. So what this person is praying for is the restoration and the ultimate fulfillment of God's purpose for the Davidic dynasty, for a king to come and to reign forever. And he trusts that God's loving kindness is going to be faithful and true, and God is going to bring his promises to pass that the crown that is cast into the dust will once again be placed upon the head of one who would come to reign of the house of David. What does Matthew say? Beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
If you read through Matthew's gospel, Matthew is drawing attention to the kingdom of Christ and Christ who is the king. And even people are coming from far off places saying, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And even the blind men in the gospels can see who he is when they cry out and say, son of David, have mercy on me. They're blind, but they can see that the one who has come is the son of David. And we see all the, the, really the complexity, but the beauty in the way that God fulfilled his promises in bringing that to pass, that he promised that he would be born in Bethlehem. And how did God orchestrate that? It was through a worldwide tax that took Joseph and Mary from a far off place back to their hometown, Bethlehem. So Jesus could be born there in keeping with the prophecy of Micah that was given 700 years before. And that's just one of those details where God is bringing things together. And he is showing that he does work all things after the counsel of his own will, as he brings his son into the world, who is king. And so, yes, for those shepherds, it was something to see the angels. But what was the message? For unto you was born this day in the city of David, a savior who is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Lord. He's king. And praise the Lord, his kingdom is forever. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is, is not his equal. Don't ever stop singing, a mighty fortress is our God with that verse. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man, capital M on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, capital W, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom's forever. Unending ages in which God will reign. Christ will reign. If you've trusted in him, you are on the right side. The battle is his. He will bring about the victory. Isaiah prophesied the same. Luther, in his hymn, testified to scriptures like this. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. How is that going to be accomplished? 
How is this king going to come and reign like that? Like no king has ever reigned. Because of death, because of lack of power, a lack of people, whatever the case. Well, Isaiah says it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God's energy, his decree, his counsel must surely come to pass. And this is what he has said regarding this earth and eternity. Christ reigns. He reigns forever. Praise the Lord. We could see many Old Testament texts that point to this. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel says of the Son of Man that the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, verse 14, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What did he say to Mary? What did Gabriel say to Mary? Came with a message from God, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. His kingdom will have no end. As a believer, does your heart thrill to that thought? That I am serving a king who reigns forever. Worship him today. Serve him today. Love him today. Preach the good news of the gospel today. This is the truth. This is not just a a, a theory. This isn't just an idea. This is the truth. What will his kingdom be like? Well, you'd have to read through Isaiah, the prophets, to see the greatness and the glory of his kingdom. You see the peacefulness of his kingdom. You see the righteousness of his kingdom. You see the glory of his kingdom in terms of the peoples. And you see some of that in the book of Revelation when people gather together before the throne of God and there are people from every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping together before the throne of the Lamb. Will that be the experience of every person? No. There will be some who will not be in that company, worshiping the Lamb. Jesus said in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not only can I experience the sphere of salvation now in this world and submission to Christ's reign, but they will never participate in the glories of Christ's kingdom. They will never be in God's presence in heaven. What is the character? We've been looking in Matthew 18. What's the character of those who come into that kingdom? Jesus said, truly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There has to be a humble trustfulness in God and in the truth of God's word and in who Jesus is for you to enter into that kingdom. 
That means you need heart cleansing. You need a life cleansing. God needs to change you and give you a new heart. Jesus said that to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He was talking about what Ezekiel said in the book of Ezekiel of a heart cleansing, a change, a washing that God would accomplish, and there would be a new creature, a changed person, someone who turned away from sin and turned towards God. And of course, we know from the New Testament, that means to repent and turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer asked, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You will be saved from your sins. You'll be saved from the penalty of your sins. You will be granted eternal life. You will be with your King and God forever in heaven. Have you done that? I could be talking to someone today and you've never put your trust in Christ. You may have prayed a prayer. You may have thought you did that, or you may think that you're a Christian, but you never actually put your trust in Christ. You've never called upon his name. Today could be the day of your salvation. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus will rescue you from your desperate condition, and you can be with him and his people in his kingdom, his glorious kingdom, both at the end of this world when he reigns the millennium and beyond that in eternity. When he puts down the devil and all evil, and we'll have unending ages to rejoice in our Lord and serve him together. Would you come to him today? You might be on the brink today, and God is actually pinpointing something in your life that you know you need to do. Would you come to him today? What, what are you delaying for? What, what would be your reason, your good reason for resisting? I think if you really consider your reason, get to the bottom of it, there isn't any good reason. Bring your sin to him. He knows what to do with sin. He can cleanse you of your sin. That's all you need to bring. Bring yourself. Bring your sin. He'll cleanse your sin. He'll change you, make you new. Would you come to him? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. I asked you some kind of pointed questions before I pray. And I just want to say, if there's, if I've asked you a question, you would say, I, I know I need to respond to that call, that invitation to come to Christ. But I, I, don't, I don't necessarily know how or I need some more counsel or help. I just want to make myself available to you and say, if you catch me after the service today or later today or sometime even this week and you wanted to talk, I would be glad to speak with you. There are certainly other believers here who, if you ask someone, they will, they will gladly sit down with you and tell you, point you the way to Christ. 
but don't don't keep on going on without putting your trust in the Lord. Lord, you know the souls that are here, souls that are listening. And Lord, you know those who belong to you. You know those who do not. We don't because we can't see the spirit of a person. We can see, Lord, what transpires in a life when someone puts their trust in Christ. They are willing to confess Jesus as Lord and turn from their sins. They're willing to follow him and be obedient to his commands, first to be baptized, but then also to follow in the church. And we just ask, Lord, that you would do your work in hearts today. Accomplish what we cannot. Convict by your spirit of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And open their heart. And I pray if they're wrestling and struggling, Lord, that they would just give in and yield to you. And that you bring them to yourself. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to number 105 in closing. Stand with me. Let's sing together. Came upon a midnight clear. 105.